2: The Slaughter Podcast will be discussing topics that some listeners may find disturbing. If you're still listening, get up the apples and pears because we're about to have a bubble. Hi, welcome to episode 16 of Slaughter. Lucy and Emma here. And this week we've got another couple of stories for you. Apparently one of them is from London. I assume that's why Lucy forced me to do that voice. And for my own entertainment. But... <laughs> yeah. Um, but I'm going to start us off um, with a guy called John Bodkin Adams. Bodkin. I know, that's, that's what drew me to it, is the Bodkin. That's a fun name, isn't it? He is, or was, a GP who was suspected to have killed more patients than Harold Shipman. <gasps>
1: no, um, no.
2: And, but his conviction was slightly surprising, which we'll get into. So he was born in 1899 in Antrim, which is Ireland. Didn't fancy doing that accent at the start.
3: <laughs> you had a go, though. I, I, I can't, liked it.
2: I can't promise it won't come out later.
3: <laughs> Brilliant.
2: But he was born into a family of your favourite religious sect... The Plymouth Brethren, of course, mainly because it took you ten attempts to say it last time. <laughs> they're by the sea, <laughs> they are by the, but if you remember um John George Haig, the acid bath murderer, in his defense, he claimed that it was the conflict of his upbringing as a Plymouth brethren, the really strict upbringing and his Catholic education that turned him into a killer, so I was really like, oh my God, they're back!
3: I know you. So
2: I actually went and then and did a little bit of research into the Plymouth Brethren, thinking, okay, this is a thing. I'm blowing this wide open. <laughs> They're all murderers. They're not. No. They all never listen to this because they don't listen to TV or radio or anything. So so we, so want. we can say whatever the fuck we want about them. They're all pedophiles. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> we can't say that. There's a line. But so the Plymouth Brethren, they were established in like 1829, 1830. So at the time when... They were growing up in it. Their parents were sort of like the revolutionary early members. And there are two sort of types. They came out of dissatisfaction with the Anglican church. And you have got the open brethren and the exclusive brethren. And they're the ones, the exclusive brethren, are the ones that you probably hear about most. They have schools. There's a school near here that is an exclusive brethren school. um, Because I knew someone that taught there. They go to church my mum. Of course they do. They said it's really tricky because there's so much they can't do in lessons. Like they're not allowed to use any interactive visuals or oh, the internet yeah. or like... TV. So it's literally just chalk chalkboard yeah, and it textbooks. So they deny being a sect. They um, say that the name is just sort of for practical reasons and they don't want to give their the non-denominational because they literally just, if it isn't asked of all Christians in the Bible, then we don't do it. So no practices that aren't actually in scripture. So quite similar to the Jehovah's Witness, really. Um, I had a look on their website uh, just to see, is there any weird things? And the one bit that I did enjoy was they had a section on the role of women in the Plymouth Brethren Church. And it said that the role of women is very important. They have direct involvement in many things, such as the selecting and announcing of hymns. Oh, I was like brilliant Responsibility there Yeah We really respect the women We let them choose All the songs they want
3: Every hymn Is chosen by a woman Apparently so I mean I was just thinking About that school It'd be like I don't know if it'd be Quite a nice place to teach Because you would not Have issues with mobile phones Would you like You're not gonna have Kids on phones But Then you can't break Your lesson up with a video I'm gonna say If I haven't planned That lesson properly I do not have YouTube To come and save me Yeah like, in. I could tell you about how neurons cross the synapse, or and... <laughs> Bill, neither
2: science guy could do it.
3: yeah with a visual <laughs> go, Bill
2: So yeah, but they're still going to, they have about forty six thousand members worldwide, so still relatively small, and for anyone who's interested, the film "Son of Rambo. Um, in that the little boy comes from a Plymouth Brethren family and Rambo's the one film that he's seen which is why he acts out so oh. maybe go look at that so John Bodkin Adams was brought up as a member of the Plymouth Brethren and a lot of the information that I've researched today comes from a book Killer Doctors The Ultimate Betrayal of Trust by Kenneth Gibson And it was interesting, I found, as reading the book, I was starting to wonder, who is Kenneth?
3: Is he a doctor?
2: I'm not sure. He's probably going to be the next person I'm looking to, because he hates everyone. He should be on the podcast, really. He rips the piss into their appearance, (laughs) their sexuality. Kenneth is a bit... um, Kenneth's a bitch. Kenneth is a massive bitch. (laughs) Bodkin Adams' father, Sam Adams, was a lay preacher of the Brethren and a local justice of the peace, so he was very strict, and as a child he had really strong limitations on what he was allowed to do. His mother, Ellen Bodkin, she was really bright, and she invested her husband's money into property, and tried to get built, take them up the social ladder, and they moved to County Tyrone when he was about three years old, which, from the way they phrased it, I assume is like a step up. Let me know, Sandra. <laughs> um, so because it was so strict and religious one of the few treats that um, John was able to have was food and he had a very sweet <laughs> so tooth he was massive yes
3: he was a little weeble of a man <laughs> no Facebook no YouTube you're just going to set stuff your face up
2: yeah like if you're good you can give you a cake Um, so he was quite isolated from the other children he wasn't allowed to do things they were
3: like he was... physically he was far away
2: The <laughs> court could move possibly Um, but it said that he was a devoted mummy's boy Um, but he obviously didn't have many friends and he had a younger brother who died of pneumonia when he was 16 so I think he had quite a lot of reason to cling to his mother perhaps so I'm not so on board with that as a reason he was so he grew up and he avoided being called to fight in World War I because he was training as a doctor at Queen's University in Belfast But apparently, although he was sort of bright, he wasn't, um, like, one of the best of the bunch. He had to really work hard for everything and he didn't grasp it easily. So he struggled with the workload and he had a nervous breakdown while he was at university and just really was finding it difficult. But in 1922, he eventually graduated and took up a position in Eastbourne, which is in Sussex,
3: Mm.
2: you know, nice little seaside town. He earned half a crown for a home visit when he was first a little apprentice. Oh, half a crown. But the post had been advertised in an evangelical paper specifically seeking a Christian doctor. So he was still... Um, he, all his life he maintained that he was a very strict Christian, very religious, and that's what he was well known as being in the community. There's
3: something a little bit suspect about either a religious doctor or an obese doctor. I just, I just kind of think... I want my doctors...
2: To be healthy.
3: Healthy and (laughs) belief-free. Like, I just want them to be healthy atheists. Yeah. I want them
2: to know... To be able to practice what they preach. And to not preach and actually cure me.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want them to be praying while I'm on the operating theatre. I want them there, ready to go. See, I hadn't really considered
2: that, but... I was thinking that he was maybe just paying lip service to it, but... Now you've said it, probably he thought he was actually just doing the right thing, like if God's decided to take them.
3: Yeah, or also, like the beeps go, if he just gets down on his knees and start praying, no, save Defibulate my life, <laughs> save my life, <laughs> ask God to do it, <laughs> no, you do it. And But this was pre-NHS
2: uh, National Health Service, so this meant that he was visiting private patients, and around Eastbourne, it's... Known for being sort of like a retirement, especially then. Yeah,
3: it's like old people Retirement town.
2: area for rich old people. Even the
3: signs are like, Eastbourne, everyone. <laughs> You're in Eastbourne.
2: <laughs> so yeah, and at the time it was nicknamed Costa Geriatrica because the old buddies just loved it and it was full <laughs> of them. And so in 1926, he also got a doctorate in philosophy and a diploma in anaesthetics. So he's still obviously like say he's got really strong beliefs and is yeah. trying to do them side by side, but he, but it said that he lacked confidence and he'd regularly call in specialists um to give second opinions on things.
3: yeah, I don't want an obese religious com- lacking confidence, doctor, but the old women loved this because they felt like they were getting this special treatment
2: because, oh, I'm going to call in a specialist to see you. So they, they're they rich and they felt like they were getting the VIP
1: part Is the of nurse? it. He's
2: like, what do I do? And it was also sort of a scam because he would get paid as the GP. And then when he called in a colleague, they would get commissioned for coming in and giving a consultancy. It's just him with
3: a fake moustache on going, I'm the specialist and I think we need to... Dr. Have- Adams has just had to nip out for a
2: second. He saw a sandwich on the pavement. But by 1930, he'd um, got enough wealth that he bought this large house just behind the Grand Parade, six Trinity trees, and it is absolutely gorgeous. It was described as a villa, but I looked it on Google Maps, and fuck me, it's like five stories. <laughs> no. Like, it's one of the ones that would probably have been made into a hotel like by yeah. now, but it hasn't. It's so beautiful. No. It's like a little mini mansion. It's gorgeous. Which so his mother and who was now widowed and his cousin came over and kept house for him. Which you needed; it's huge. I think he said eighteen rooms or something. Good God. Like it's not a modest country doctor's house. Who
3: needs eighteen rooms? Like how many people are you having around?
2: He probably had to knock a few through yeah. just to get in. <laughs> yeah. Widen all the doorways. <laughs> yeah. I won't keep making fun of him being fat because. I'm getting there. You could get through a doorway. I can fit through doorways <laughs> for sure. <laughs> yeah. But in all his extracurricular activities, Bodkin Adams still presented himself as just this perfect Christian gentleman. He would have Bible study sessions at his house on a Sunday. He didn't smoke. He rarely drank. He was the joint chairman of the local YMCA. He was part of the Plymouth Brethren down there. He was just... Appearances, everything spot on. But this is when Kenneth gets a little bit shady. There are various different sources that suggest that Bodkin Adams might have been gay. Um, No one person seems to agree with each other. Pamela Cullen has done a biography of him and she's convinced that he was homosexual. Other people haven't so much. He could have been. But Kenneth goes on to talk about how in his life he never married. And he... Gay.
3: Must he is, have been gay. Well, he
2: doesn't think it's gay. He's just convinced that the reason he never married is because he was so horrendously ugly. Which <laughs> he was wasn't that? really. He was just an... He like, looked like a fat old man. Like He wasn't like Quasimodo or anything. He
3: was just like, I don't know, like a cartoon butcher. To be fair, I mean, we have been commenting on his weight, but he'd probably be average now. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Well, so he says that he was five foot five, piggy-eyed, obese, jovial-looking, and not in any way physically attractive.
3: Oh, buddy, how can it? He just really went
2: in hard. What does Kenneth look like? Um, But he's so harsh, and he would say. And apparently he would ride around on a motorbike, which Ken says would have been highly amusing considering his size. <laughs> like, bitch, he can ride a motorbike if he wants. Yeah, I'm
3: sorry, but like, isn't it prerequisite that you've got some extra weight if you're going around on a motorbike? If
2: anything, it shows that he has good core control and
3: balance. Either you've got to be a little bit overweight or have tattoos to get away with a motorbike.
2: Yeah, have you ever seen a Hell's Angel? Yeah, if there's are I haven't, they're, they're but skinny, I assume they're, they're slightly big.
3: <laughs> Most of
2: them. So... In the cartoon. Pipe down, Kenneth. But he did also like cars too. At the time of his arrest, he had four cars in his house, a couple of Rolls Royce. He was living the life. He did actually become engaged in 1936 to Nora O'Hara, who was a butcher's daughter, but his mother apparently disapproved, said that she wasn't good enough for him. And because he was such a mummy's boy, he called it off. There are also alleged to be three other women who fell in love with him and swore that they would never get married unless it was to Dr. Bodkin Adams. Oh, blimey.
3: It's like when you get a tattoo of someone's name, you're like, I'm going to love them forever. Yeah, like, no.
2: Right. I mean, I think probably considering the area, they might have been quite old, and swearing to not marry someone <laughs> for the rest of your life was actually quite a low-key well, commitment. <laughs> yeah. Like, I promise to love you until next week. Yeah, when I go. But Kenneth, of course, is like, well, they must have wanted to mother him because it could hardly have been his animal magnetism. Oh, yeah, clearly. But like, I don't know, like, a big guy is attractive. I was saying this to... when I was on a different day the other week. I was saying about how I think that, like, bigger guys are still found more attractive than bigger girls. I'm like, yeah. if you, a big guy can still be seen as, like, masculine and strong and protective and bear-like, whereas if a woman is that size it doesn't have quite this... Like, society doesn't really look on it the same way. You're, I mean, like, tall. Yeah, I think if you're a tall and, like, overweight guy, like, people will still find you super attractive because you're just yeah. seen as, like, big and strong,
3: even if you're i Yeah, I'm, like, most of my friends... I do. Yeah, most I'm of my friends don't want, like, no. a thin guy. Or even, a like, a particularly muscly buff guy. I've never really thought I want someone hench. Just because I couldn't keep up with that. No. I'm not... Yeah. I don't want to be like.
2: So the the point was, Kenneth, I'm speaking to him directly now. We would fancy a fat guy. Yeah. I want to. I feel bad saying fat. The point is, Kenneth, we would fancy a big guy. Yeah. But at this sort of stage in his career, it's thought that he was regularly receiving a few thousand a year on top of his wages from patients who'd passed and given him money in their wills. At one point, he was um, given £3,000 by Mrs. Witten, and this was contested by her niece, saying that she wasn't of sound mind, but he did go to trial and he won the case. So,
3: people were sort of suspicious for a while. Also, when there's money involved and you're, someone's given away your inheritance, you're going to be a bit like, well, I might as well fight for this.
2: Well, apparently this was a common thing, but I don't know that I would give... Like, if you your doctor if you're grateful to your doctor yeah give them a present if they've cured you if you're dead they've failed at their job (laughs) you don't get a reward by definition you shouldn't get a reward in the will like no because that means you've killed me off or you didn't look after me properly or no but there was always a lot of gossip about him there was a famous music hall star he'd also been in some like silent movies and things called leslie henson and he'd He'd had friends and family that had been treated by Dr. Adams and he was always, like said, they were far too heavily drugged and sedated for his liking. So he would always, and then when they died later, so he was always suspicious. And he did actually contact the police at the beginning of the investigations. So Adams was well known for his giving out of drugs. He would use a wide range, but mainly he would use morphine, barbiturates and heroin oh bloody hell yeah, which for a GP is not standard pra- even then was not a standard practice to <laughs> yeah. give out like they should not have been just carrying around in his bag but he would readily road. have them one of the most notable cases a case that he was eventually tried for was Edith Morell. so she was 81 years old at the time of his her death
3: I mean that name Edith's not making a comeback is it like that's old lady name
2: yeah it's done now isn't it yeah
3: um, but she was the one that was brought to trial and that was quite
2: controversial because there was it wasn't the case with the most evidence. Her body had been cremated. There hadn't been a post-mortem take place. So there really actually wasn't much to go on. It was thought that there might have been some politics involved in why this was the case that he was tried on later. Pamela Cullen, who I mentioned before, who did his autobiography, she wrote a book called Stranger in Blood and she said that he would also, if he wasn't... If the bodies weren't cremated yet, he would inject them with embalming fluid before a post-mortem could take place. Because then, once you've had that, you can't perform a toxicology on them. Oh, shit. But it would be later found that if he had been involved in someone's will, he would put as a stipulation that they would have to be cremated and not buried. Oh, <gasps> That's naughty. Proper naughty. But so, Edith Morell. She became one of his patients in 1948... She'd had a stroke that left her paralysed on one side. So she sort of just contacted him as, I need general care and looking at. She wasn't suffering from an illness. But Dr. Adams came over and introduced her to morphine and diamorphine, which was heroin. And soon she was on the maximum daily dosage of morphine, which is about 7.8 grams at the time, and 3.4 grams of heroin, which is more than 75% of the daily maximum. So, just because she was powerless, she wasn't actually in pain. So, she didn't need anything other than. Someone that's had a stroke and then it's. Yeah. But he was saying, oh, I'm relieving her pain. So, she was obviously a massive drug addict at this point. Yeah, she was high as fuck. She was having morphine and heroin, like way more than she should have been. Over a course of two years, she was severely addicted and needed Dr. Adams, totally dependent on him. So, in 1949, so a year of this has been going on. Adams first contacted her solicitor and said that, oh, Edith said to me she wants her will changing so that I get um, some silver dining sets, (laughs) which seemed weird, but he did it. And then a year later, Dr Adams came to the solicitor's office in person saying that the Rolls-Royce and a jewellery box needed to be added to the will and that the house could be given to him if her son died before her. And there's apparently the solicitor was like, "This is a bit odd." Yeah, but did it anyway.
3: Oh, for goodness' sake!
2: So, September 1950, Doctor Adams had been on holiday. He went off for a week. While he was gone, three days after he'd left, Mrs. Morell managed to pull herself together. She would have been jonesing pretty badly, like yeah. serious withdrawal. She's already paralyzed halfway down. Well, the dealers cut her off there. He's gone, and but she managed to drag her ass into cutting him out of her will. Well done like
3: she's been heavily sedated for
2: years and yet still she has that strength of mind to be like this is wrong
3: yeah she knows it's shit
2: so she cut him out of her will but once he'd returned a week later apparently there he goes again back at the solicitors yeah no she does want me I mean, that's that he so convinced suspect, her to tear no. it up the second will was torn up and then her health really started to decline yeah, i bet it did yeah of course it fucking did in her last five days it was noted that she took the equivalent of 90 tablets of morphine and 150 tablets of heroin so he's just basically killing her off with an od there pretty much in 1956 there was another notable case these were friends of leslie henson that i mentioned before so it was mr and mrs hullett Mrs. Hullett had been introduced to her husband by Dr. Adams initially, so they were quite friends, but he died in his sleep following a breathing attack where Adams had been called... You did too much breathing, and now you are dead. Yeah, but Adams was called, saw that he was having some sort of attack, and decided, you need morphine injections. And some heroin, probably. He'd also been named in the will, so his estate was split between Dr. Adams and his now widowed wife, Mrs. Hullett.
3: Oh, God.
2: So... After his death, Mrs Hullett sort of was struggling to sleep, she was quite depressed as you would imagine, so Dr Adam prescribed barbiturates to her, but soon after he started prescribing them she fell into a coma. He wasn't able to visit straight away and a different doctor, Dr Harris was called, and he said, it doesn't look like cerebral hemorrhage, could it be an overdose? But Dr. Adams overread him, refused to take her to hospital and instead came over and injected her with the antidote to barbiturates, which is megamide, but then called the coroner to book the post-mortem while she was still alive.
3: <laughs> Good God. So he
2: was panicked that obviously this doctor had said, oh, maybe it's an overdose. So yeah. quickly gave her the antidote and allowed a post-mortem to happen so that they wouldn't find anything. Yeah. But She's not even dead yet. booked that post-mortem while she was alive. So this Dr. Harris refused to sign the death certificate because you have to have a couple. Yeah. So there was an inquest because he wouldn't sign it, but they couldn't prove if Dr. Adams had given her an overdose or if she'd piled the barbiturates from her prescriptions is what Adams claimed she'd done in order to commit suicide. Um, but um, she had left her estate to most of her family, but a Rolls-Royce went to Dr. Adams... And also, she'd given him a cheque for a £1,000 a couple of days before her death. So Dr Adams had been to the bank and had to go through, it's called specially presenting, so to cash this cheque, and so it would go through faster. Because if it had gone through the normal process, she'd have been dead and the cheque would have been stopped. So he already, that was... People suggest that he already knew he was going to kill her. Yeah. Because why would he rush through this check yeah. if she wasn't going to die? So this was when Leslie Henson, and um, who was their friend, and they were also friends with Chief Constable Richard Walker, and this sparked another investigation.
3: I mean, he's—I'm I'm not surprised because he's leaving a shit ton of evidence. Like it's not. This is not an easy like murder. Someone take their money. Like there's so there's a big paper trail. There's a massive paper
2: trail. Apparently, it was just common for people to want to give their doctors things in their will. But who's doing that? And, like who's rewarding? Like, and because he was having
1: people with cremated, surely. No well, yeah. yeah.
2: And because he was having them cremated, there was no way that they could look back afterward. They had to take his word as a doctor that I was giving them this pain medication that they needed it.
3: But it, it shouldn't be allowed that you give, you're giving a, an individual like give it to the NHS. Fine. I don't don't think... give it to an individual say, doctor. Are they allowed
2: surely they're not allowed to do that on the NHS now?
3: I don't know, but also give it to the RSPCA. Donkey Sanctuary. Like if you've got leftover money, not the donkeys. <laughs> the kid one. The one with the kids. Everyone, support the kids.
2: So, Scotland Yard were called in for this bizarre case. And there was a guy there called Hannon who looked over the death certificates from a period of ten years, and out of those he found that 163 deaths were in suspicious circumstances, mainly because lot. the cause of death was something that couldn't have been known unless a post-mortem had taken place, but no post-mortem had taken place. Yeah. For example, saying that they'd died of a stroke or a cerebral hemorrhage, it's like, we well, can't tell by looking at them. Mm. He had also found that he had benefited from 132 wills <sighs> of these people. But surprisingly, his... Or well, not surprisingly he did have some what were called panel patients which is like the beginning early stages of the NHS so these were free patients yeah. but none of these had suspicious deaths and none of them had left any money to them in wills if they had died which sort although it says that oh he's actually okay but it shows that he's targeting the yeah. rich victims of course so um I'll just quickly give you a few others before we get to the trial Yeah. If there was I mean there's tons it would take me all day to go through the suspicions that people had, but so there's one um Emily Mortimer from nineteen forty six I think she had two nieces that were set to inherit from her. She changed her will to leave him three thousand pounds, and then later on changed her will again to cut them out altogether, leaving five thousand pounds to dr Adams and it was claimed that she died of cerebral hemorrhage. That was a lot of money then loads, basically everything she had, yeah. Annabelle Kilger in 1950, um, she called him because she was feeling a bit ill. He came over and gave her what her maid said was a large injection to keep her quiet, but she died of cerebral hemorrhage the following day and had left him some money and an antique clock. Mm-hmm. In 1951, Margaret Pilling caught the flu, called Dr. Adams to come and see her, and after his visit alone with her, she fell into a coma. The daughter visited and was shocked to see that she was so heavily drugged, so took her away to her house, where she made a full recovery. We've seen this before. Harriet Maud Hughes died in 1951 of cerebral hemorrhage also. Only months after she'd started being a patient of Dr Adams, she did have a brief period of recovery, in which her main priority was to go to the bank and sign a paper for £1,000 for Dr Adams and £1,000 to a couple named the Thurstons, who it was later found out were a cover name. So they, so they were taking the £1,000, they were going to keep 10%, and the other 90% was going to go to Dr. Adams. Oh,
3: so they were in on it then? They knew what was going on?
2: Well, they were just like, oh, we're not allowed to write out this large amount of money oh. to the doctor because it'll look suspicious, so would you mind helping us out? Yeah. 1952, Julia Bradnam called the doctor because of a stomach ache. She had five minutes alone in consultation with him, and was dead, of cerebral hemorrhage. Weeks earlier, he'd helped her change her will, claiming that hers wasn't legal, and insisted that the witness had just signed it and leave without reading. (laughs) So he is really just across the board being...
0: He's killing off patients. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yeah. So the
2: investigation started. They start. They searched his house, searched his surgery, and found that he was carrying around illegal amounts of lethal drugs that he, sh- he should prescribe and go back for. He shouldn't just be carrying around all this yeah. heroin. Um. The nurse's logs wouldn't list what injections he was giving. He would just tell them, if they gave one, it would say what they were giving, how much. If the doctor gave one, he would just say, I'm giving her a special injection. I mean, that sounds rapey. (laughs) I'm giving her my special injection today. I'm giving her my homegrown sausage. (laughs) When they first interviewed him, he was basically a blubbering wreck he would be crying he would contradict himself he admitted that he would use drugs to ease the passing of patients but never kill them which is kind of what is the same thing
3: yeah i mean it's a it's a grey area because i'm sort of pro euthanasia and actually if someone's suffering give them a bit of extra morphine if this is definitely end and they're miserable but clearly that's not what he was doing. He, he basically thought that anyone who was old and a little bit ill, it's not worth you carrying yeah, on. Yeah, it's just suffering. Suffering to keep her alive. Um, he was also found that
2: he would not declare when signing death certificates that he was inheriting, which is a legal practice. Apparently was totally common, but he was doing it all the fucking time. Yeah. And he would frequently start quoting Bible verses, and he would contradict his use of legal drugs, uh, lethal drugs, saying, "Yes, I did. Oh no, I didn't. Or oh, I did a bit." And he was just a complete mess in interview. Eventually, when they came to arrest him, he managed to put his foot in it again. because With his famous line, he was arrested for the murder of Edith Morrill and his response was, "Murder? Can you prove that it was a murder?" "Uh, yeah." So a lot of you feel that he admitted it because surely if you're innocent... Sorry, he would have said it in an Irish accent. Murder?
3: Can you prove that it was a murder? Oh, he's quite <laughs> cute in his little Irish accent. We'll just let him off.
2: But if you're innocent and someone's charged you murder, you're like, oh my fucking God, like, I've not murdered no, anyone. Not? No, are, are you sure you can prove that? I'm pretty sure I covered my tracks. <laughs> yeah. He then also, as they were leading him away, apparently said to the receptionist, oh, I'll see you in heaven... Basically thinking, yeah, I'm going to get done for this. I'm dying. Yeah. So he just couldn't keep his fucking gob shut. So 1957, the trial took place. The Homicide Act had just been introduced, which meant that capital punishment was still happening, but there was about five very specific cases to which it could be applied circumstances. So he wouldn't qualify for this trial unless he could also be found guilty of murdering at least two other people.
3: Yeah, and it's hard to prove.
2: So he wasn't up for the death penalty anyway.
3: Yeah.
2: And like I said, they had all of this stuff, but because there was no real evidence, it's all like rumours, gossip. They could only try him for this one case, the murder of Edith Morell, which again, people have criticised saying it wasn't actually the most evidenced case. So the trial lasted for 17 days, which was the longest that the old Bailey
3: had seen at that time. I mean, if you're on jury duty, you'd be like, get me out of here. Yeah, right. 17 days. And you can't talk to anyone, can you either? So you're just trapped in with these nutters that you're on jury duty with.
2: And it can't even have been that interesting because Adams had been advised not to speak. So he wasn't given testimony. He wasn't cross-examined. Basically because he'd been such a fuck-up in the interviews. No shock evidence. No one's pulling any knives out. No. Well, one thing that did go on was these notebooks, these nurses' logs. The police said that they couldn't... There's all sorts. The police said they couldn't find them. Then the prosecution had some, but they were forced to give them over to the defence. So then the defence were able to whip out these notebooks at the trial and say, well, here, actually, we have the evidence of what he was giving. And this threw the nurses that were given evidence Mm. and actually because then they'd had to just remember what they'd given and what had happened from years ago yeah so then when they were presented with his notebooks in trial by the defence of course things didn't quite match up and so his case the case against him just began to completely fall apart what did you have
3: for dinner three years ago
2: yeah Um, and then saying well actually now I have the diary that proves it
3: (laughs) someday probably lamb dinner no actually it was lasagna oh shit
2: I mean the nurses weren't uh, were just held in high regard and it was just genuinely accepted that they couldn't remember things but the case wasn't looking well they really needed a cross-examination of him to contradict himself but there was none he didn't have to um, at that time didn't have to say anything they did have a medical expert who came another doctor who stated quite clearly that his treatments were severely incorrect that stroke victims shouldn't be given these sort of drugs and the only reason he could have been giving it to her was to kill her there was no pain that she was suffering
3: like he's a trained medical professional it's not like he he doesn't know
2: yeah but everything about it was just complex the summing up by the judge took three and a half hours oh my god (laughs) you just be like get to the point like the judge just rambled on (laughs) three and a half hours like sometimes i think (sighs) my stories on the podcast go a bit rambly but you know they're 30 minutes or under. The jury, however, was so done at this point that they acquitted him within 44 minutes. <laughs>
3: they were just like, get us out 17 of here.
2: days of trial, no. three hours <laughs> of being ranted at. And they were like, yeah, but acquitted. So they found him not guilty. Adams just went free. 1957, he resigned from the NHS and then was later sent to court for like 19 counts of negligence and illegal signing of the death certificates so he was struck off but that was his punishment he was struck from the medical register and he was fined 2400 pounds like
3: now you must go and live in your mansion with all this money yeah you could no longer be a doctor two thousand oh, pounds was nothing well, to him
2: mate.
3: exactly and so he didn't
2: serve any time in jail and because even though he was struck off at that time you were still allowed to practice medicine just Honest list friend. yourself as an un- yeah Enlist yourself as an unqualified doctor. If You can, you can take private patients if you want what? you to.
3: That's bullshit. So he
2: never stopped.
3: Oh my God. And in
2: 1961, he was then readmitted to the medical register. So then oh, he how began... How desperate
3: were they for doctors?
2: So then he began practising properly again as a qualified doctor. And because he'd been readmitted to the medical register, he was then able to sue the newspapers... For libel that who had said that he'd killed all these people, he'd been acquitted, he'd been readmitted, he was then receiving money oh my from God. all these different publications for libel of his case. It sounds like madness, yeah. But I, and I don't feel like he's a criminal mastermind of it. I feel like he's just really fucking lucky. Yeah, he's just jamming
3: There is—is this, is, is this it? Like, is he like it's foreign He he never goes to jail. He never. Yeah, he never went to
2: jail. He just chilled around ridiculous. Eastbourne. Died in nineteen eighty three. Just had a lovely little
3: life, and then the life expectancy in the town soared, yeah.
2: <laughs> rocketed up. There was, there are other um, theories about his involvement that he treated the Duke of Devonshire, who was related to the Prime Minister Harold Macmillan, and that he'd been happy with him, so he wanted to protect him. I mean, you're not going to kill off, like someone really famous you? well he had died but they were saying that because he hadn't like he could have blabbed about this famous connection he hadn't and that he'd kept you know they were protecting him yeah. that also said that um the i want to get it the judge had been seen having dinner before the trial with roland Gwyn, who was the former mayor of eastbourne and was a suspected lover of dr adams uh. so it's there are theories that suggest that he is connected with all these influential people that managed to engineer a shitty trial for him but so he's not actually some people believe he's the worst serial killer we've had in england
3: well, and yet he
2: just complete, no comeuppance
3: no comeuppance no comeuppance that's it well he and his piggy eyes have pissed me off So my um story is a ghost story. No. So <laughs> but um you'll see. But um it's in Hammersmith in London. Um so in eighteen oh three in Hammersmith in London, a number of strange incidents were regularly occurring. Um and a white figure had been seen seen by a lot of people in the community in the local graveyard. I mean it was quite a close knit community People would meet up to gossip. People would meet up to talk, and the ghost was thought to be of a man who had committed what, suicide. What people were chat- meeting
2: up to chat in the graveyard?
3: No, they were like people. People knew each other, and they would like they'd all gossip about stuff. Like I don't talk to my neighbors. Like we oh. wouldn't hang out talking in the street, but they would. And but oh, did you see this? Yeah, they were all like chatting all the time about everything. I guess they didn't have Facebook, so they did it in the street. Um, so the ghost was thought to be a man who had committed suicide by slitting his own throat which I mean if you're gonna kill yourself Jesus Christ like and had been buried in the graveyard and because he'd um, committed suicide suicide, then the
2: horrid catholics like you don't go to heaven no more yeah
3: so he had to he was doomed to roam the ground because it was consecrated and he shouldn't be there that was the story so he was kind of like the the local ghost that people were reported seeing quite a lot Um, so a few of these reports were at 10 o'clock Christmas Eve um, a local woman had cut across the graveyard and she saw the figure this is 1803 and she saw the figure of a man and she described it as very tall and very white so your dream date (laughs) (laughs) I'm not dating a
2: white boy you know
3: (laughs) she tried to run away but the figure was faster than her so the figure like caught up with her and it wrapped its arms around her huh? for a cuddle and she fainted. Neighbours were worried. Mine wouldn't give a shit about me. Like if I didn't come home, none of we my neighbours would a little ghosty cuddle. Yeah.
2: Big deals.
3: But she didn't get home and the Some na- of
2: us would love a cuddle from anything. <laughs>
3: <laughs> ghost or no ghost. Somebody had <laughs> touched me. So her neighbours basically noticed she hadn't come home so they went out to look for her. And um, they found her basically wandering aimlessly near the graveyard and took her home and she died the next day, so this got people talking like she'd report i mean she was rambling about a ghost, clearly she'd taken a funny turn or something I mean the ghost stuff to me is non... i mean I don't believe in ghosts, so and to I me think it's just
2: like a man all powdered up, possibly, but
3: like i don't I don't take the ghost stuff on board personally like i'm not i'm gonna just dis- i'm gonna dispute it all the way through. Thomas Groom, a young man living in Hammersmith, also claimed to have seen the ghost. He said it had attacked him from behind a tombstone so it jumped out from behind a tombstone as ghosts famously do.
2: I love what a prankster this ghost (laughs) is. He's like gonna chase you for a
3: cuddle and then he's just gonna pop out (laughs) from the tombstone. Like he's like crouched behind it. Ghosts don't crouch. I've never seen a crouching ghost.
2: They up here. It's
3: just a white man. And then grabbed his throat with both hands and then another man who was also walking yeah but then
2: what happened he grabbed his throat and then no no
3: yeah and he started trying to oh, choke sorry, him oh sorry same story yeah and then another man who was walking behind apparently said what's the matter like obviously not really upset with that and the ghost disappeared. I think he was caught wanking in the graveyard. <laughs> he was like, Oh, it was a ghost strangling me. Yeah.
2: Oh. That's what those sounds were.
3: <laughs> I was being strangled by that ghost everyone's talking about. You sound like you're in pain. What's happening? <laughs> um nothing. What what's the matter? The man had shouted. So I mean the man hadn't seen anything. I mean it was an excuse. Yeah, you wouldn't shout, What's the matter if weird. you saw someone getting strangled? No, You'd go by a ghost. OI <laughs> Get off him, ghosty. Yeah. Let him go. Come on, Paleo. So talk of the ghost was growing. People kept describing it. Some people said it was a figure dressed in white. Um, some people said it had horns and a glass eye. Some people had said it had no head at all. He sounds very cutting edge. Like very editorial. Horns yeah, one, a glass eye. one glass eye. It's cool. Um, businesses didn't like... Um, this rumor of the ghost, they have started being affected. Some people just avoided Hammersmith what altogether. What affected?
2: Like, oh, the hot dog stand
3: in the graveyard. <laughs> people aren't just coming anymore. But I think people would like walk through, um and they just avoided the area. They were just scared. And I think there was some reportings of him around the graveyard as well, like in the streets around the graveyard. So uh, it was affecting local visitors. um But also,
2: here's so- a tip: just close at night time. Like, don't have your business open in the night. True. Do it in the day.
3: I think that must be how it happened. Now, all our shops are open in the day. So, um, but some people were going to Hammersmith to try and see the ghost. But they weren't bloody shopping there. So it didn't help the businesses. So I thought... They brought their own packed lunch. I thought... I hate it when they, do they that. Could they just capitalise on it? Have all their waiters wear the white. Well, hot dog stand. <laughs> You're all wearing white. You're going to serve them. Like, make it a thing make it an attraction like
2: yeah those haunted houses that some people visit like like
3: come to see the ghost well it's not in the graveyard but all our waiters look a bit like them and they'll give you a little cuddle after they give you the food (laughs) so francis smith was um, a young officer living in the area 29 Mm -hmm. years old um, and he was getting frustrated with the fact that the mystery wasn't being solved. So he was like, this is ridiculous. Clearly it's a prankster. No one's solving it. Ghosts so should... don't crouch. Ghosts don't crouch. So he began volunteering to patrol the area at night. So he was like, neighbourhood watch. So him and like some of the geeky people from the neighbourhood would like go out looking for the ghost at night, trying to catch the prankster. But it was really difficult because the area had a lot of different paths than anyways. Um, so... Even it if... was
2: difficult because they didn't know their way around. <laughs> yeah. Basically,
3: well, I think it's like that you could run out five different ways from this around this graveyard area, so they could just like disappear down an alleyway or disappear over here. So, um, nothing was happening. Um, so Francis, um, so on January third, eighteen o four, Francis went to his local pub after he'd done his shift um, as a police officer, um, and he went to the White Hart on the way back from work, and conversation began about the Hammersmith ghost and he was usually pretty chill but he was like this is getting ridiculous now I'm gonna go find it so he was determined to catch the ghost and I think he kind of wanted to be a bit of a hero as well he wanted yeah. to be the one who already had a
2: drink and he was like
3: right yeah I'll
2: sort this out
3: yeah and um, so he took his loaded blunderbuss nice which is Good my, choice. My favorite name for a gun.
2: Like it doesn't sound threatening at all. That's not gunny, is it? Blunderbus. Uh, it sounds like no. just something that, like, a
3: confetti cannon or something. It does, but it makes it's fabulous. It makes the me think something's going to go wrong because it's got the word blunder in it as well, though. True. Okay, shot with my blunderbus. Like, whoops, missed again. I used the mistake, (laughs) Cullen. Like, something's gonna go wrong, isn't it? So he took the Blunderbuss out with him and he set off down Black Lion Lane. There's a lot of black and white named areas. It's because it was black and white in the olden days. Yeah, like, they couldn't call it red. Yeah, what is red? No, everything's in black and white. That's all we know. A thousand shades of (laughs) grey. Yeah. Um, So he went off down Black Lion Lane. um, And um, so it was pitch black, So he was walking slowly and cautiously, no streetlights, really, really dark. Um, He began to get rather scared. He was on his own in the darkness. Mm. He started freaking himself out. I do that. Yeah. Like, I can hear them. I can see them. I did that last night, actually. And I was like, what if I look up and there is a figure in the doorway? And like, it just... I do that. Like, if you're driving past a forest and like, oh, what if I saw someone coming out from behind a tree? And then you always see people coming out from behind the tree but then you think like the fact I've thought that doesn't make this any more likely to happen so why am I scared now it's ridiculous but you do you psych yourself out so approaching him Francis creeping down this lane sees a white clad figure walking towards him it's a priest so he's like holy shit and he shouts out stop who goes there the figure doesn't reply continues to walk steadily towards him in the darkness Right, we're going to leave the story there for a second. Because I'm okay. getting scared. So, jumping to back at 10 o'clock that night. Right, yeah. earlier. few minutes after 10, on January 3rd, 1804, 32-year-old plasterer <gasps> Thomas Millwood... He's a plasterer! He's covered in white shit! ...visited his parents at their home in Hammersmith. He was wearing his plastering outfit, linen trousers, white waistcoat and an apron. <gasps> yes! His mother and father headed to bed, so he went round to visit them. They were like, "Oh, we're knackered, just off to bed." Sat around chatting with his sister Anne for a while. Probably got bored of her rambling on about whatever crap she's talking about that night. So around eleven, um, he decided that he was going to walk home. So he's going to. That's a time reasonable
2: time to go the fuck home.
3: Yeah, I mean, everyone's going to bed. Clearly, like, just like if really- your mum and dad have gone to bed, that's a massive hint that they want you to fuck off. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Anne watched him from the door, which my mother has taught me is good manners. And she was very angry when we were on holiday, and I didn't, I didn't walk you to the door and stand and watch you drive away. But I find really annoying someone standing watching you leave. You're setting the satnav. Yeah, because I was like that. I was like, oh shit, your mum's watching me. I'm
2: just trying to find what album I want to listen to, putting the satnav on, taking my coat off. Like, I'm gonna be
3: here for like maybe 15 minutes, faffing. I know, right? And she was standing there going, Lucy, you're so rude. And I was like, I don't want to watch her find the podcast she wants to listen to on the way home. Like, we, this does not need to happen. So Anne, Anne was of my mother's uh, idea, and she watched him leave. Which, for a sister, I mean, there's no way I'm going to watch my brother leave. I'll watch you go to the car. Yeah, get in, like... <laughs> I don't need to see you drive away. I don't need evidence that you've left my property. But um, you know what I did that day? I did
2: set off driving because I was like, "This is weird. They're watching." And I just pulled in round the corner to set yeah, the sat nav. Exactly. I was like, "This is too awkward." You caused this. And am going have to just drive off and stop in a minute. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Uh, that's how That's how strongly my sense of British,
3: like, don't say anything. If it's weird, just <laughs> yeah, carry on. <laughs> basically. And I knew that, which is why I didn't go and stand and watch you leave from the doorway <laughs> until you'd gone. Um, so he... he, She was standing in the doorway and he started walking off down Black Lion Lane. Halfway down, he heard a voice saying... Now, originally, we'd heard him say, ha! Stop, stop who goes there. <laughs> he heard damn you, I'll shoot you if you don't speak. Sounds more likely. Slightly different. If Uh, you're
2: drunk and frightened of a ghost, you wouldn't be like, who goes there? You would be like, show yourself, (laughs)
3: fool. Yeah. I mean, potentially maybe this was the second thing that he shouted, because he did say he shouted a few times. there's
2: always
3: three sides Um, to every story. True. Um, Followed almost immediately by a gunshot. So after he shouted that gunshot, so it's potentially... Is it called a gunshot from a blunderbuss? Isn't it called like a blast? Possibly. A bubble <laughs> um, a spurt so, a spurt um, a spunk <laughs> people still talk about you saying spunk in episode one why like a spunk shine me up
2: I've got plenty of spunk stories if that's what you're after
3: Anne called out so she's still in the doorway watching doing yeah. her duty um and he didn't reply um <gasps> so she went in search of him found him on the ground with his face covered in blood and she tried to get him to sleep but he was dead so, oh, no. Thomas Milburn is unfortunately deceased. Um, John Locke and Mr. Stowe and William Girdle, don't know why Mr. Stowe doesn't get a first name, <laughs> like, we know no. the other two, um, came after the sound and found Francis Smith incoherently, basically saying, I've mistakenly shooting someone. Um, they quickly found the body of Thomas Milward and um, Francis basically said, like, you yeah, know, take me with you, like, oh. like he's surrendered. Uh, Francis Smith was arrested and taken to Bow Street Police Station, um, which is another one for our Slaughteropoly.
2: Yes, for sure. We're building
3: them up now Um, to await the coroner's inquest. The coroner said that the murder was willful, or potentially willful, so right. it did go to trial. Well, yeah, he'd meant to, he thought it was a ghost, but he'd meant to shoot him in the face. Yeah, like, he'd he meant to shoot someone. Um, So he waited trial at Newgate's prison. Which is my argument
2: for any time anyone says, like, oh, I'm taking a gun just for protection, like that the implication of that is at some point you're gonna shoot a person yeah like you don't hold the gun for protection you shoot the gun for protection so that's not like a yeah it's not like oh don't worry it'll be fine i'm only having it for protection no you're only having it to shoot a person at some point you're saying
3: that if shit goes down i will be shooting people dead yeah if you want protection take a shield yeah (laughs) That's, that's that's gonna cause less damage so he was on trial on friday the 13th which i mean bad luck anyway um the men who were there gave their evidence so they you know they all said about the fact that it was dark that he'd confessed or you know, everything yeah. that had happened and spoke um she claimed to have had a dreadful premonition that something would happen to her brother that night not very helpful and thank you um could have said something at the time could have said don't walk home i feel like i've got a dreadful tre- yeah. premonition
2: she probably did she was watching him from the door she might have done just also how dark could it have been if she was still at the door watching that meant she could still see him yeah maybe not as dark as he's claiming maybe
3: um mrs fulbrook also testified that the week before thomas millwood same guy had scared her under the lady and a gentleman that she was with because um, he was walking around in clothes because he was walking around in wearing all white and she had he had said i'm not a ghost and then had said to the gentleman, do you want a punch in the head? Nah. <laughs> I'm assuming he said no. <laughs> um, but she had she made it clear at court that she had said to Thomas uh, Milburn, you need to wear a grey coat or something because people are scared of a ghost and this is just going to lead to trouble. So she testified that in court. Um, the jury discussed the case and they came back with the verdict um, guilty of manslaughter. Which I thought was fair enough. I mean, someone had yeah. died... It wasn't, I mean... It... Uh, to be fair, though,
2: what are the chances that it is a ghost? Like, the the biggest likelihood is that you're about to shoot someone. Yeah, true, like, but... How many times has a ghost been shot? Zero. Plus, if it was a ghost, shooting them doesn't actually do anything.
3: True. But, but yeah, I know. But do you know when you get those pranksters who, like, run around in town like dressed as a clown or something, and then someone punches them in the head? I do think, fair enough. I mean, you're trying to scare people. If they respond oh, they by punch- punching if you in the head. Oh, if they come up
2: and scare you. oh, that's true. I would punch someone that tried to scare me.
3: Yeah, and like, But I wouldn't shoot well, them with my pr- blunderbuss.
2: Hence no. why you shouldn't have a gun for protection.
3: True, have a Use fit. your
2: punching hands.
3: <laughs> but like, do you know, like, um, there's that famous clip and someone jumps out of a bin at someone and then they just smack him in the head. You think, fair enough. And they're like, oh, it's only a prank. Well, you are trying to scare people. Yeah,
2: that's his fight or flight. Like, if
3: you get hurt in the process, then... I mean there's some really funny prank videos of like people dressed as ghosts and stuff in like countries where you wouldn't do it in the UK. But um anyway. Um so they came back with guilty and manslaughter, but the bench, which I guess is like the collective
0: We did
2: people... Sorry, I just remembered like the first I'm sure it was like one of the first times that you met my ex boyfriend and we were at your house and we stayed up like watching videos of you on youtube of people prank of people getting scared by ghosts yeah and then i remember going home and he was like what have we just been doing for two hours <laughs> <laughs> it's like yes.
3: this is what we do three luke going another one another one he's obsessed so uh the bench basically said when i came back with a verdict of manslaughter that um no either you've got to say he's guilty or you've got to acquit him it's one or the other so they said we're not accepting that Um, so they went away they discussed again and they returned with the verdict of guilty of murder and he was sentenced to death
2: that's a bit harsh because obviously he did it that's why we invented manslaughter so that things like that don't happen yeah
3: I thought that was a bit unfair though like no it's got to be one or the other he's already been convicted of something like yeah so, happy end well, it's not a happy ending for Thomas Milburn, but um the case was taken to the king back when the monarch could actually do shit, mm. and um they overturned it and Francis Smith ended up doing a year's hard labour and that's it. I do have an update on the ghost situation. yes. Following the trial, Mr. John Graham, an elderly shoemaker, he came forward and he admitted that he had dressed in a white sheet to frighten his apprentice and that had started the rumours. Um, and I thought that was hilarious. That's hilarious. <laughs> Just a little old man, like, yes. I put a sheet on my head and I scared my apprentice. Oh, and shit. clearly, the apprentice went and told everyone. And then the shoemaker died and started haunting Hammersmith. Of course, Eva, he fucking did. No, he didn't. <laughs> so that's, uh, that's my murder. That was an interesting one. Yeah, liked it.
2: Thanks for listening to another episode of Slaughter. If you enjoyed it, then feel free to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also tell your friends, but, like, only if they're super cool. Also, if you want to speak to us on twitter our handle is at slaughter the pod and if you want to email us because the things that you've got to say are far too important for 140 characters you can at slaughter the podcast at gmail.com
3: yeah i also want to shout out um, twisted philly which is another true crime po- podcast and um, twisted philly offers true crime haunted history legends and local lore. cool and creepy places to visit or from philadelphia and pennsylvania bye bye
1: Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quins. Go to quincecom style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.